I think when you're like 20 years old, you're like, oh my God, I'm going out with an agenda. I'm Mm -hmm. 19, I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I'm gonna find someone to make out with on the dance floor and I don't care who they are. Hello, my name is Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Here's how it works. Every single week, I speak to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. And occasionally I ask very intrusive questions. So, we talk a lot on this show about the very, very first time that a lot of people went to queer spaces and all of the wonder and the dread that comes with that. But... There is another time in one's life that we do not celebrate enough and which I think might actually be better. And that is going out in your late 20s. And I'm wildly generalizing here, but for most people, this is a time when you are a little more settled, but still a little bit frenetic and jumpy, a little bit less... Mm, let's say desperate and you've just kind of eased into yourself a little and you know who you are a little bit more than you did when you were in your teens in your early 20s which brings us to today's episode philip jeremick is my guest and he is a canadian comedian and writer who moved to new york city in 2014 after finishing theater school and it was here that he lived that for want of a better term, struggling artist life, replete with skanky share houses, taking any damn job that people will offer you just so you can keep your head above water, and going on dates with older men with the vain hope that they will pay for dinner and you won't have to go hungry. Oh, that is living. We caught up to talk about the Rusty Knot in New York City, which technically wasn't a queer space, but did become one on a particular day of the week, which you will learn more about when we get into the chat. We talk all about the joys of day drinking, the thrills of being in New York City, and I get slightly panicky and moralistic about the concept of free alcohol for some reason. Why don't we get into it? When I did move here, the first four months, I lived with my parents' friends, at their insistence, they were like, oh, you know, Philip's moving to New York. We want to help him out until he gets on his feet. And I like met these people like a few times when I was a small child. I didn't know them that well. And they were my parents' friends. And they were like, yeah, he, he should live with us until he gets on his feet. And so I come in from the airport and they lived in this spectacular apartment full of like original mid-century furniture. And I was like, oh, honey, <laughs> I am in New York. And uh, so where was it? So I just in my mind went to this position that they were like in upstate New York and you had to schlep into Oh, no, no, no. They were in Manhattan. <laughs> it was a beautiful apartment in Harlem. Oh, and wow. uh, And part of me was like, is it going to be weird, like living with my 
parents, friends for, you know, if we don't get along, I guess I'll just get the hell out of there as quick as mm. I can. We had the best time. And I would regularly <laughs> ask them, why are you friends with my parents? Because they were way cooler. And they were this like rich, childless couple. In fact, the day that I arrived, they were like, the doorman will let you up. We're at the ballet. Who knows when we'll be home? And I was like, okay, I, I like what I'm getting myself into. So that was great. And then I lived in complete squalor after that. Um, it was a real riches to rags <laughs> story. And uh, But, you know, it was a lot of fun. I then moved to a neighborhood called Inwood, which is the very tip top of Manhattan. 207th Street, Ooh. to be precise. And to give you a sense of how far up that is, I think Manhattan has like because they're all numbered, 223 or four. And I was 207. So I was, I was really up there. It was all I could afford. And, and I lived with a gay couple who were uh, disgusting is just the word I'll use. They just, they in were a good so way? Ma- No, unfortunately not in a good way. I wish. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, sex parties morning, noon, and night. It was them spilling something under the sofa and going, well, it's under the sofa, like liquid. And I was like, no, you have to move the sofa now and wipe it up. And they were like, but it's it's down there. And it was like Coca-Cola or something. And I was like, that's just going to cake into like a, a circle of sugar and a, a pile of ants eventually is what it will become, you fucking idiot. So so my room was my sanctuary and I I dreaded setting foot in other parts of the apartment. But hey, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> but okay, so what was the plan of coming to New York? Like, why did you do it? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in Toronto, so I had gone to theater school with, you know, big ideas of, of being a serious actor. Mm-hmm. And I went to the school that was at the time considered, you know, one of the top theater schools in the country. And they reminded us of that every single day. <laughs> and they were, you know, very serious in that their whole kind of um, philosophy was, you know, when you come to us, we're going to uh, break you down so we can build you back up again. And, you know, when you're a bright eyed 20 year old and you're like, I got into this great school, you're kind of like, I'll do whatever you want me to. And then they would just tell girls, like, you're too fat to play Juliet oh, and things yeah. like that. It was, it was an interesting place. And so by the time I was done, I realized, wait a minute, I don't want to just be doing regional theater for the rest of my life. No offense to those who do. It can be really fun. But I was like, I just, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And a good friend of mine, we're still great friends, Alana, she and I were kind of the, our professor's looked at us as they they were like, these two are the bottom of the class and not because we weren't good at it, because we we didn't like drink the Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? We didn't pick up what they were putting down. We kind of okay, saw like, through it Do you have any all. evidence that the professors thought this about you? Oh, they told us. What? We would they, have interviews. They told that you you're, 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 oh, you're yeah, at the bottom. Absolutely. <laughs> They're like, they, every year we, we would have an end of year interview where they would sort of give you a status report of how you're doing. And I remember my first year, we were in this dark office and, you know, you're flanked by these professors. I think there were three or four of them. And <laughs> one of them said he was this old, old gay man. He was like in his 80s and he wore these weird leather vests and these like strange necklaces. And he was he was a real character. And 
he was this renowned acting teacher. And I remember, I'll never forget what he said. <laughs> he said, off stage, you are a lovely young man. But when you step onto the stage, you don't excite us at all. <laughs> I mean, brutal. And being the uh, kind of eternal optimist I am, I just focused on, okay, but offstage I'm great. So at least there's that. At least there's that. And then the other professor next to him said, we keep telling you this isn't the place for you, but you keep trying to prove us wrong. And for that, we will let you stay. So basically they said, you know, we think you suck, but you have a fantastic work ethic. Wow. <laughs> it was like a cockroach. They just couldn't kill me. And so by the end of that, it turned out they were right. And so my friend Alana and I, we were like, this isn't the place for us. We never took it so seriously. And so we started, as soon as we graduated from theater school, we started doing sketch comedy. And we started a, a sketch comedy duo, the two of us. And we basically just started going to comedy clubs around the city and saying, hi, we just graduated theater school. Will you let us <laughs> play some characters? And we would just do a lot of character-based sketches and then we loved it and we got really good at it and we eventually had a monthly show and at a, at a comedy club in Toronto and we wrote for a TV special and so after a while because our international listeners may not know this but Canada's television industry is very very tiny and and it's so funny to me people always say because of course our goal was always to work in TV mm -hmm. you know and people always say oh but all sorts of things are shot in Canada. It happens all the time. And I'm like, yes, but those are American productions that are simply shot in yeah. Canada because it's a lot cheaper. And so I just thought, you know what? I felt like I had done all that I can in comedy. And I thought, let me go to New York where there's a bigger comedy scene. And I knew I was like, I'm going to be starting from scratch and nobody will know who I am. But whatever, I was, I, I remember thinking, I'm young enough. I'm young enough that I can do this. <laughs> I was 25 at the time. And, and so I did. And there was this theater at the time in New York called the Upright Citizens Brigade, mm -hmm. which was a, a comedy theater. And, and in Toronto, I forgot to mention, I did the Second City, which was this old, well-known comedy theater in Chicago and Toronto. And so I did that. And then after I did that, I was kind of like, okay, well, what now? So I thought, well, let me go to New York and do UCB and try and get a, an American manager and just try and get jobs writing comedy or performing comedy, kind of, you know, I never really had a plan. Uh, and I still don't. Oh, <laughs> but, it, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's one thing leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. So I want to go back a few steps. I think it's really interesting to hear about your school and the way that they were just like, oh, yeah, you're probably not right for this and you're a bit shit. And that they were like mm -hmm. openly like, we are here to break you down. And sometimes I think, wow, that's really good to have that experience as a young person because then you're like bulletproof for everything else. You're just like, cool, throw whatever you can at me because I already know it's not really going to be that bad. But then other times I think if that was me and I was a young person that experience that, I might just then never leave the house again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think you're right. It can go one of two ways. And a lot of people left that school after the first year because I think they realized either this is, this is not for me or why are these people speaking to me this way? <laughs> and so for whatever reason, they left. 
but you know, I'm stubborn. So mm. I just thought. Well, yeah. And it's so impressive that you didn't go like, oh, they don't think that I am right for the school. Therefore, maybe this isn't the right career path for me. And that the conclusion you came to was, well, this isn't the place for me, but somewhere will be. Off I go. Yeah. Yeah. So just, yeah, kudos. I'm trying to be nice, I think. Oh, thanks. I'm not thanks. really used to being nice, so sorry if it's not coming out right. <laughs> I'm trying my best. You're trying your best, and that's all you can ever do. <laughs> See, this is the kind of encouragement I need. Um, uh, but so then arriving in New York, do you remember the feeling? It was very exciting because there's something about... Now, I'm going to sound like I'm romanticizing poverty. Uh, and for uh, our listeners out there, I am not a rich person by any means. I just, for the first time in my life, have a nice steady job in television. And it took a long time. But anyway, in those days, there's something about being young and poor and just having this big, dumb ambition. You know, mm. you're kind of like, well, I moved here with a flimsy plan to just do something in comedy because I think there are more opportunities here than in the place I came from. And that's kind of it. And you're always sort of figuring out, you know, well, what am I going to do for work to pay the bills while I'm, you know, pursuing this dream? And how will I pay my rent? Where will I even mm. live? You know? And so it's scary, but it's very, very thrilling. And I think when you're in your twenties, it's the time that you are like built for that, you know, because even, even then, you know, it's not just looking at it in retrospect. Even then, I remember being like, well, I'm in my 20s. It doesn't matter. Like, if I'm still figuring it out, it doesn't matter. If I'm scrounging together, you know, little coins in a jar, it doesn't matter because I'm in my 20s. I don't have to have it figured out yet. And so I think I just embraced that kind of decade as this is the time I'm supposed to be doing this. And so let's just try it out. And how long were you able to maintain that level of enthusiasm with the aforementioned poverty knocking at your door? A, a surprisingly long time. <laughs> ah. Because I guess there were always like small victories uh -huh. along the way. And so as long as those kept happening, I felt it would, you know, many small victories will eventually precipitate into a larger victory. Oh, that's um, a fancy word, precipitate. You are a writer. Thank you. <laughs> Aren't you just pi picturing the rain falling as I say it? Uh, and I don't know. I just had a thought like, well, what the hell else am I going to do? I want to make people laugh. I want to write comedy. I want to figure out how to get a job doing this. And I mean, don't get me wrong. There were days where I was just like, there. I remember there was... <laughs> One day I had just arrived in New York and I was standing in a supermarket and I had like $5. So I was working at the time as a nanny for this family and I would get paid in an envelope of cash every week by the mother. And I don't remember how, it was not a lot. It was like $300. So, you know, that's $1,200 a month. And so my rent was... I think 600 living in that hellhole with those two guys. And so basically I had 600 to spend on rent and then another 600 for just that was it for the rest of the month. And I remember there was this period where like I needed new headshots and I had all these expenses. And so I burned those $600 and I stood in a supermarket and I think I had like $7 or something. And I was like, okay, 
what can I buy with $7 to last me an entire week? And I uh, decided to buy a package of hot dogs because my rationale was, well, there are there are eight of them in this package, so I'll just have one hot dog a day, and I'll have an extra one. I'm like, it's perfect. And by, you know, day three, I was like, this is fucking disgusting. I never want to eat this again. And... I, of course, I had parents, my parents back home who are very, like, working class people. But still, they would call and they were like, oh, do you need us to send you any money? How are things going? And the answer was always yes. But the answer I gave them was always no. Mm. I was like, you know, I'm a grown-ass man. I'm going to pretend this is much easier than it is. And I'm like, no, no, guys, it's fine. And my mom's like, are you eating well? Yes, of course. Um, So, you know, there were days like that. But, you know... I went on a lot of dates with, like, rich older men so I could have good dinners, let's be honest. <laughs> let's get into it. The, the real way to survive in New York. Yeah, and there was the whole pretending to reach for my wallet, and, you know, they're like, I'll get it. Are you sure? Oh, God. Thank you so Did much. Did that ever blow up in your face? Uh... Never, because oh, I will say, I, I never went out, when I did go on those dates, I was like, in case they are like, yes, let's split this $300 bill in half, I had to make sure... I had a credit card so I could at least do that if I had to. Yeah, see, I think people always assume that I'm, like, much more together and with it than I am. So I never really got away with that. I mean, that's life in the big city, honey. (laughs) You got to be clever to say Yeah, I've got to, like, look a bit more, like, feeble. Sorry. No, I didn't say that. Feed me, feed me, daddy. (laughs) Feed me, daddy. Literally. Okay. (laughs) And so... I am going to make some assumptions about you because you went to theater school. I can't wait. Were you out when you moved to New York City in 2014? Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And so going back to that question about the feeling and the anticipation, were you also a bit like, wow, men's is is? Um, Yeah, a little bit. Because I had dated in Toronto. You know, I was 25 when I moved here, so I had dated... In my early 20s in Toronto, but yes, when I moved to New York, there was definitely like a different caliber of men. I remember I dated this guy who ended up being such an asshole, but he was, um, I was in my 20s, he was in his 40s, and he was this very, very handsome architect, just, you know, textbook, tall, dark, and handsome, and he would wear a suit every day, and on one of our, like, I think like our second or third date, he came in a suit to the restaurant and he had a briefcase and he had a copy of the New York Times just like perfectly folded, sticking out of the briefcase. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? This is just perfection. Like you were just a walking New York stereotype of, you know, a successful man. And I was there for it. And I made, and I called him out on it. I was like, you look ridiculous in like the best possible way (laughs) with your newspaper perfectly sticking out your tailored suit. And so was that the type of gentleman that you were targeting. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like I said, I had to eat. <laughs> Why did you burn, but like, you know, did you cast your net wide or was it just those types of gentlemen who show up in suits? Um, I mean, I don't know if I did cast my net wide. I, on a, but to be serious about it, I always, when I was dating, I always wanted to date people who were different from me, who didn't do what I did for a living. 
and because I just thought it was so much more interesting. You know, it's like you come from theater school, so like everyone you're surrounded with is an actor. Mm. And obviously there is no shortage of gays in theater school. And so I just thought, okay, well, I know that. I know those kinds of guys. Like, what don't I know? And so I was always fascinated by going on dates and sleeping with people who were just like their every day was so different from mine. I just found it more interesting. Um, I mean, at one point I... I think I dated like three lawyers, like I dated one lawyer, I broke up with him. I dated another lawyer, I broke up with him. And I and now I'm, I'm in a three-year relationship with a lawyer. And that was, that's not like, I don't have a lawyer kink. It just kept happening. <laughs> <laughs> it just kept happening. Mm, well, it might be a kink. When does it stop just being a coincidence? That's a good question. <laughs> Okay, and then, so were you throwing yourself into the scene? Yes and no. I was really, really into the comedy scene here, and so there are certainly overlaps Mm -hmm. in New York with the gay scene and the comedy scene, but I never really... Yeah, I I just came here with such a purpose, and I was like, I'm going to, like have whatever job I have to have to survive, and then I'm going to go do shows in the evenings and take comedy classes, and that was... So that's really where I met all my friends kind of Mm -hmm. because I was, you know, taking comedy classes by day, doing comedy shows in the evening. And so all my New York gay friends that I made were also, they were, they were the comedy gays. And so there was definitely an overlap. Mm -hmm. So then let's move on to the rusty knot that we're here to talk about today. Why was that the space that you wanted to talk about? It was such a special and unusual place. I've never loved a, like a like a bar or a club or a place to go out or, and I'm putting it in the category of, you know, like restaurant bar, whatever. Mm-hmm. I've never had a place that was like, wow, this is just like my place that I love to keep going back to until I discovered the Rusty Knot. And there were just so many reasons to love it. So what was interesting about it is that strictly speaking, it was not a gay bar. But every Sunday, they had this event where Sundays from 4 to 5 in the afternoon, it was free, unlimited vodka for one hour. Free? Free, completely free. Unlimited vodka from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. So although this place was ostensibly not a gay bar, you better believe it became a gay bar (laughs) for that hour. So, you know, the gays just like moths to a flame. Free vodka? Are you kidding me? And so it was packed and you would literally go up to the bar and you would say, I'll have nine vodka sodas, please. And they would just give them to you. And and I think the way they got away with it is they made a killing in tips because of course we were all tip generously because they didn't limit how much we had or how much we could order. So in that one hour, they probably made a ton of money. And so it, you could basically have any vodka drink. So it, it, they were, you could just do like a vodka soda, vodka cranberry, whatever, the basic stuff. And you could go up and say, I'll have five, I'll have nine, whatever, as much as you could carry. And then you would carry it back to your friends And then when you were done, you would just go back to the bar and have more. And it was one hour every Sunday. It was crazy. And so before you told me about this free vodka, you were saying that the space was the one bar or the first bar that you'd ever Mm -hmm. felt like, oh, this is my place. It's 
And I'm hoping the reason for that isn't because you were always so blackout drunk there. <laughs> it's because I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> no, no, there. Are, I know. I really set that up. Uh, I was like, it was a special place. Why? Free alcohol. Goodbye. Uh, no, no, no. So before I even knew about this free vodka fest that happened every Sunday, I think it was just it was a place that I just stumbled upon. And okay, I'll get into really why it was special. Um, so this place was in the West Village. And the West Village is is a charming little neighborhood in Manhattan, lots of bars, restaurants. But this was at the very, very, very edge of the West Village. And what I mean by that is you cross the street and it was the river, Mm -hmm. the Hudson River. So it it was as far west as you could possibly go. And so it was this little bar in this otherwise sort of residential pocket of the West Village. And it's one of those places you stumble upon it and you're like, what the hell is this doing here, you know? Because it was it was the only bar. Uh, it's surrounded by kind of apartments. And you went in and it was aesthetically like an old, like, captain's, like a pirate's shack. It was like, it was the, 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 the seafaring nautical theme was heavy-handed. And it was just, like, kitschy just like wood carvings of captains on the wall and like um, ropes, like nautical ropes. Like this was the decor. Really um, dusty. But it, but that's just it. it. It was actually really, really cute. Like there was a pool. It was tiny, tiny. There was a pool table in one corner that no one ever seemed to use. And then the rest of it was like cane furniture with like, the, like these leather and cane chairs. They were like burgundy. And then the floor was like mint and white checkerboard tile. So it was like a really cute, kitschy little spot. And then there were like anchors on the walls, you know what I mean? And like fish. And it was just this weird, tacky little spot, but it was so cute. And and it's like they were in on the joke, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It wasn't just like some rundown piece of crap. This was an intentional aesthetic. You can be both. You can be both. I think <laughs> it's hard to achieve that, but you can. But they they were in on it. And it was just so great because... You could go there on like a Monday to a Wednesday and you had the whole place to yourself. And so it was, I would take dates there. It became this really fun date spot because if you went on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, you're sitting on this tacky furniture that you look like you're in like a divorced dad's basement. You know what I mean? And and you have the whole place to yourself and like, it was just so cozy. And then on Thursdays and Fridays, it was just like, kind of a rager and straight people. It was very straight on Thursday, Friday nights, and I guess Saturdays. But it was always just like a really fun, inclusive space. And then Sundays, I later discovered, was free vodka hour. So there was a lot to love about this place. And what was kind of really special about it is because it was at the edge of the West Village, it had these big windows and you would look out and you would just see the river and you could... Like the most beautiful suns, you would see the most beautiful sunsets mm. from this bar. It was just like a multitude of things, you know. It was tacky. It was sort of out of the way. People didn't really know about it, but it was strangely beautiful. It had these epic sunsets. It was just such a special little spot. So you might have seen me scribbling down just then when you said that you took some dates there. Mm-hmm. Because I want to know more about that. Are there any dates that stick out in your mind? Okay, there was one that was, and I hope my boyfriend's not listening to this. I um, hope he is. I was, 
<laughs> it was one of the best dates I've ever been on in my entire life. Um, the other best date I've ever been on was my first date with my boyfriend. Oh, um, yeah, sure, sure. I, I have to say that. <laughs> no, no, it really was. But I went on a date with this guy there, and it was on a Friday night, and it, we I think it was Tinder, believe it or not, how high class of me, uh, that we had met on. And he was, like, in town just for a few days, and I was living all the way up in Harlem, so I had to take, you know, a long subway ride down to the West Village. But for some reason, I suggested this place. So it, it, there were a million reasons not to go on this date. He was in town, like, just for a few days, leaving the next day. It was far away, but the the, the banter that we had when we were chatting on Tinder was just, it was just, like, rapid-fire, hilarious, just... And he was he was British, and, you know, the Brits are very good at, you know, they don't waste time. They get right to the point. They understand humor. They're not easily offended. So I was like, I, I get this guy and he gets me. And he was very hot. And so I was like, all right, fuck it. Like, let's just, let's just go on this date. And so on the way there, everything that can go wrong did on my journey there. So the something happened on the subway and then I had to switch to another train and then there was a delay on that train and I think I had to maybe like get out and take a cab. It was a disaster. And I'm texting him the whole time saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm on my way. He, and it's a Friday night, so this place is packed and he's sitting, I finally, I eventually get there. He's sitting in a corner all by himself, (laughs) surrounded by just like people who are already drunk by now. And I walk in and I'm like, I'm so sorry. And he goes, can I get you anything? A drink or maybe a watch? <laughs> and I thought it was the funniest thing. And I told my American friends this, and they were just like, ugh, well, that's just rude. What, a, what an offensive thing to say. I would have walked right out. And I'm like, you fucking idiots. That was so funny. Like, I love when someone gives me shit for something. And so that's sort of what started. And then we just sat there and talked a lot and, you know, he ended up just like being a douchebag. Not that night, like months later. Um, Wait, months later, he was leaving town the next day. Oh, it was a long distance oh, back and forth. What a bad idea. Uh, yeah, it was a uh, a farce. I would call it. It was a farce <laughs> of a brief, brief relationship. But listen, it was fun, and he was very, very sexy. But uh, yeah, it was just like a like a fun date at this really fun place. And I remember this like drunk woman was waiting in line, and she's like, "Oh my god, how long have you guys known each other? Because you're like so good together." And we were like, "I don't know, two hours." And she was like, "I don't believe it." So you know, it was what it was. <laughs> but, okay. Not much of that story happened in the space other than that drunk woman at the end. Are there any other stories? Well, no, the real, the real reason that this place was special. So once I discovered the vodka happy hour, I was living, my roommate at the time was my friend Gary, who is still one of my best friends. He is actually from Sheffield in the UK. So me and this Northern English boy living in Harlem together in a tiny little apartment. And we really became like really, really, really good friends. And we would sort of go to this free vodka happy hour almost religiously. In fact, at some point we were like, it's like going to church because it was every Sunday. It was only an hour. You know, you can see the parallels. Get on your knees very quickly. (laughs) And it was just like, there's something very different, I think, about going out in your mid-20s versus your late teens or your early 20s. And so at this point, when Gary and I were going there almost every weekend, 
I must have been like 26, 27, 28 maybe. And so I think at that age, when you're going out, you just want to have fun with your friends and you kind of like don't really care what people think of you or if whether or not you're going to hook up with someone. Whereas I think when you're like 20 years old, you're like, oh my God, I'm going out with an agenda. I'm Mm -hmm. 19, I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I'm going to find someone to make out with on the dance floor and I don't care who they are. And I think when you're 26, you're like, I'm just going out to have a good time. And so there was something very wholesome about that. Mm. And also there was an ease to it. And I think when you're at ease, you're kind of your best self. And and it was during the day. And I think there's something about that when you're, because the free vodka was from four to five in the afternoon. And so there's something about, you know, going downtown on a Sunday afternoon, getting drunk during the day. And then it's sort of, you emerge from this place at 5 p.m. And if it's summertime, you know, the sun is still out. Wait. You're wasted at 5 Wait, o'clock. Wait, so hold on. You went there, took all their free drinks, and then left as soon as they started charging. Sometimes. So generally that's what happened. <laughs> so the place would, I'm not kidding you, like right before 4 o'clock, it was like gays getting into a clown car. You know what I mean? It just like, <laughs> like, like 100 people squeezing into this tiny spot. And then it like... 5.01, and this is not an exaggeration, the bartender would go, well, happy hour's over. They would just spill out into the street. And so depending on the day, sometimes you would stay because then you were already drunk and you kind of had the place to yourself, which was fun. And then other times you would say, all right, where's the next party? So it was kind of this jumping off point. And because it was five o'clock, you know, if it's summertime, you, you kind of emerge, you're like a, like a little earthworm coming out, you know, and you're like, I'm drunk and the sun is still out and it's only five o'clock. So it felt like, you know, the night was still very, very much mm-hmm. young and full of possibilities. And the older I get, I really am a fan of drinking during the day. Because if you want to, you can be home by dinner time and you can sober up before bed. And I'm 34 and that is very appealing. <laughs> Um, but back then, you know, you're at that perfect age where I'm like, okay, I'm like 27, I'm drunk at 5 p.m., like, where to now? And so it was just a, like a perfect storm. It was, and maybe that's because it was early in the day, but you know how often, you know, you'll go to gay spaces and queer spaces, and it's a lot of, like, it can be very cliquey, you know, it's like people arrive with their friends, and you kind of stay with your friend group, and, and that's fine, but at this place, I think there was like a built-in camaraderie because, you know, the free vodka, the fact that, you know, you could see everyone clearly. (laughs) It was was very bright. And so you just made friends very easily. It was like just like a a really friendly kind of vibe. It was just felt very wholesome. (laughs) I keep saying that word, but it's, Hmm. you know. Lots of alcohol and wholesome. (laughs) And yet it was wholesome, yeah. And so the place closed down during the pandemic? It did, yes. Do you remember hearing about that? I remember hearing about it and being very upset. And it was really early in the pandemic where, like, you could only, like, eat or drink on the sidewalk outside. You know, they weren't even allowing people indoors. And so it was a real, uh, it went out with a whimper and not a bang, let me put it that way, because their last day I went in with... gathered some friends. At this point, Gary had already moved back to the UK. So sadly, he wasn't there. So I just got a bunch of friends and we went there and you 
could basically just order a drink at the front entrance and then you had to drink it outside on these stools because of the pandemic. And there was this surly old man who I had never seen there before. So I'd been going for years and had these really friendly bartenders. And then there was this like old man with like a long ponytail who looked like a wizard. And I was like, oh, so like, do you know what's happening with the place? I don't know. Oh, are you moving to a new location? I don't know. (laughs) And he was just miserable. Uh, And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll have a drink. Thanks, bye. But even then I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to get very uh, philosophical about it. But I remember even though I was upset that it had closed, I thought a place this unique had to be ephemeral. You know, it had to just have its place in the sun all good things must come to an end. All the, all those sayings applied to this place. It was just so special. I was like, of course, of course it had to come and it, of course it had to go. Why? Why? Yeah. Because I think places that are that great, like, it's like the Spice Girls, you know? Had Jerry not left when the party was good at the height of their popularity, would they have remained so big for years and years and years to come? Maybe not. So there's something about a... Didn't you love that comparison? <laughs> Wait, so let me get this right. So so the rusty knot is Jerry and you're Victoria? Is that... The... Oh, I am not Victoria. <laughs> How dare you? What's wrong with being Victoria? I mean, she was the least anything. The least talented, the least funny, the least... The um, least poor. Yes, the least poor. Well, none of them had that issue once they were the Spice Girls. <laughs> I mean, the order... Is, oh, oh, in okay, my opinion. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, should we write it down so we can compare? No, yeah, no, yeah. You, just, oh, okay. no you just share. I have a feeling we will not agree on this. Oh, what, but, wait, wait. Do we need to unpack that statement? Well, well, let's just, let's okay, just give right. our order, our <laughs> rankings, and we'll see. So best to worst, uh, best to worst, in my opinion, Jerry, number uh, one. So ginger spice, number one. Scary spice, number two. Sporty spice, number three. Baby spice, number four. And posh number five. Ah, uh, okay. Well, see, I, I would have it quite similar to that. Okay. But I think I think I'd put baby at the end. And you'd put posh in front of her. Okay. Well, I might put posh in front of sporty actually, just because of like the comic value. She has all the best lines in Spice World. I guess she did. Yeah. And Spice World is an incredible film, and I'm not saying that ironically. It is no, just great, such a romp. Yeah. It's a caper. Yeah. It's such a caper, you know? Yeah. Right. So what did we... We were talking about Spice Girls. We were talking about the rusty knot and its, it's uh, unceremonious closure. Oh, okay. So you got that chance to say goodbye. Yeah. And it, like I said, it, it went out with a whimper and not a bang, but, but I was fine with it because I was like... Oh, yes, this is what we were talking about. It was not unlike the Spice Girls. It, it, it ended when it was at its peak, you know, at its in its prime. Uh, and so I'm just happy to have had that experience there because it really was a special place. What do you think that space allowed you to explore about yourself? I think, going back to what I said earlier, it was the right space to be at that time in my life. So it was, I was in my 20s. I was feeling independent for the first time in my life because I had lived all throughout college, university. I lived with my parents at home in Toronto because I wanted to save money, you know, and and we lived in the city and the uh, university I went to was in the city. So I was like, why, why mm. bother spending money living on campus? So 
my point being that it wasn't until I was 25 and moved to New York that I actually lived away from home. With um, your parents' friends. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I went from my parents to my parents' friends. It was only four months. And then I lived in squalor. And then, and then when I lived with Gary, that was in a different apartment that was like, like a like a better kind of squalor. I think that's what it was. It was it was all wrapped up. This this space that we went to religiously almost every Sunday was part and parcel of this really special period in my life. So I was in my twenties. I was living in this teeny tiny apartment in Harlem, but it was you know we tricked it out and we made it such a fun space. And I had this roommate who became you know one of my best friends. Mm. It was just this time in my life where I was like. I have my own apartment with a roommate, but my name was the only name on the lease, you know, and that felt very kind of like, um, she's a big girl now, she's a big girl in the big city. Like, watch out, world. It was, you know, I had this great friend, I had this cute little apartment, and it was this place that we went to, and it was just sort of that feeling of, I'm exactly where I need to be, and I don't have everything figured out yet, but life is good, and life is fun, and I have ambitions and I have this place that we go to that I've grown to love. And, and again, I think because it was kind of a daytime spot and because we were in our mid-20s, not our early 20s, all of this just gave us this kind of like easy breezy mm. vibe. You know, we were like, we don't care what people think. We are not going out with an agenda. We're just two gals in the city enjoying our lives, you know? <laughs> Do you have memories of the Rusty Knot or maybe another nautically-themed bar or club from your own scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, why not get in touch? I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer clubbing, but I need your help. So why not go to lostspacespodcast.com, find the section, share a lost space, and then tell me all about what you got up to. You could also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. And believe me, I'd love for you to reach out. So go, go on, do it, do it. Find out more about Philip by visiting his website, philipjeremick.com, or following him on Instagram at Mr. Philip. And that's F I L I P when you're spelling Philip. Or just look at the show notes of this episode and you'll see how to spell it. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you took the time to subscribe, leave a review on your podcast platform, or just tell other people who you think might be interested in giving it a little listen too. My name is Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. So uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>